Welcome back to Psyched for Peds, the child mental health podcast for pediatric clinicians, helping you help kids. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Faluco, child psychiatrist and mom. We have with us three of my favorite pediatricians, Dr. Wendy Sapolsky, Dr. Kim Del Porto, and Dr. Chanley Dudley from Carithers Pediatric Group in Jacksonville, Florida. Today, we're really going to learn from these pediatric primary care experts about the challenges they've faced in integrating mental health into their practice. Our hope is to learn practical tips and strategies to help our colleagues in the field who are likely facing a lot of the same obstacles. So let's start with some introductions. I'm Wendy Sapolsky. I've been in practice here at um, Jacksonville for 28 years. I, I guess I've seen an entire generation grow up. I'm now treating many of my second generation patients and the spectrum of mental health in children and adolescents has obviously exploded during that time. This is Dr. Kim Del Porto, and I've been practicing with Carithers for 25 years now. When I first joined, um, I had a lot of new babies and, and their mothers who sometimes struggled with postpartum depression. Then I watched them walk through those difficult toddler and then preschool years. There was a lot of parenting that went along. And then as they went into elementary school, the development of concerns for their learning as far as ADHD and then certainly the anxiety and the depression. Because they almost felt like family, I... Uh, wanted to be there for them and help them and so quickly enjoyed learning about ways that I could do that as far as just knowing when to refer them to a counselor and then eventually when medication was indicated, being able to use that to supplement those other things in order to just really care for them and be there for them. I'm Chanley Dudley. I am the relative newbie in our practice. I've only been there for about 10 years. I really love the collaborative aspect of our group and how we've been able to learn together to take really good care of our patients in a very nurturing way. I didn't get a lot of exposure to mental health care in residency, and so I've learned a lot on the job. And also, I have a neurodiverse son who has a variety of excellent and fabulous learning challenges, as well as anxiety and ADHD. So that's been my personal on-the-job training in addition to professional on-the-job training. <laughs> yes. I think the parenting part gives you another glimpse behind what families are really dealing with when your own children are dealing with their own struggles. I think it's, it is really great training. Now we're going to shift and get real about the challenges of addressing child mental health problems in primary care pediatrics. Can you talk about some of the challenges you faced along the way and then anything that's helped you to manage these ongoing challenges? I think we'd all agree that that time is the biggest challenge of all. Enough time to see the patient in the way that we'd really like to, and even being able to just follow along with them and get them back in quickly when we need to has been a huge challenge. The way our structure works and the way pediatrics is reimbursed, we really can't spend much more than a 30-minute time slot without significantly losing reimbursement and compensation compared to like a checkup. If we were to see 8 to 10 mood disorder type children a day, which sometimes we get close to that, we really are not profitable. That's sad and that's hard. One of the other shortbacks is just the whole lack of resources with counseling. So a lot of times our time with them is not just trying to figure out if they're having side effects on a medicine. Once they're diagnosed, it has to do with how their whole life is going. We certainly are involved in trying to help them figure out how to cope with their lives and how the medicine is um, interacting with all that. And so we really could use a whole lot more time, <laughs> long story short. So that's probably our hardest challenge. How does your practice deal with that? How do you guys manage that? 
I'm not sure the three of us manage so well, to be honest. So I think some of the things that our practice does very well is we do use a lot of screeners. Kim has been our champion of screeners, and we push them out ahead of time to our parents and they have them filled out before they come in for the visit, except for the teenage sensitive ones like the PHQ-9 or the GAD-7. So we have an idea of what's going on before we walk into the room. So I think that helps us save some time. I think on any given day, you just don't know exactly what you're walking into. Something I'll say about the screeners, too, is not only do they give you an idea, but they help you dive in deep quick. And so if you look at the scared, for instance, there's a lot of questions on that. And if I didn't have that in front of me, it would probably take two hours to sort through all that. This way, it's all right there in front of you. And without having to use, go through all the negatives, you can pick out the positives and say, tell me about what your fears are about something happening to your parents mm -hmm. and, and really get what's in their heart much quicker. So I really feel like the screeners are probably the most helpful things that we have and that you have taught us about that have made a huge difference. You guys are, you know, some of the mental health champions within your practice who really have taken on the responsibility of taking care of these kids, acknowledging that this does take longer and it's emotionally taxing or can be. How does that work when you're in a group practice where not everybody is necessarily doing this and not everybody is seeing eight to 10 patients for mental health issues per day? So we have a really lovely structure at our practice where we are able to take the time that we need with our patients, and we all jump in and help each other if we're running a little bit behind. Some of us are moving a little faster, and some of us move a little slower. So we, we do pick up the slack for each other from time to time as best we can. We're not RVU-based at our practice, which is one of the blessings that I have found as a practitioner, because we do have the ability to practice the quality of medicine that we like to do. Kim and Wendy, do you have other thoughts? I will add, and I think some of y'all already might have this available in your EMR, but two, three years ago, I started using Dragon to dictate my charts and my complicated charts, and it was life-changing for me. And then I introduced it to Chanley. Actually, a little more than that, we um, called her husband and told her husband to get it for her for Christmas as a Christmas present. And then Dr. Kim same thing. And so the three of us are the only ones you have who use Dragon to dictate. And I think that has helped the three of us tremendously. The other thing that I think really <laughs> helps is charting. When I write in my assessment and plan what is going on with a person's anxiety, I really try to make measurable notes as specific as I can get. Like, for instance, I have, for some reason, a lot of patients that are really anxious about driving. And so I'll make specifically the steps they've taken and where they're going and, and what their goal is. Or it might be sleeping in their own room instead of their parents' room, or it might be the number of suicidal ideations they have every week. When the last time they cut is down to the day. By charting really specifically, I feel like that significantly cuts down the time with my next visit. I'm general and, and sweet at the beginning, but then I can get right into, okay, how are we doing with this? Always trying to be encouraging, but I really feel like that helps my time. I've learned to do that over the years is to have measurable charting and measurable outcomes. outcomes. I just want to echo the importance of having measurable outcomes in your charts. For example, you have kids with behavioral outbursts or tantrums. We want to know the frequency, the intensity, the duration of these tantrums before you start any sort of treatment so you can get a feel for how it changes over time. Unfortunately, our field is not like we have a magic treatment and everything gets better overnight, like antibiotics, and it all goes away. Our issues tend to improve a little bit at a time, and so it's helpful to know where they started. 
One of the things to dovetail onto what Kim was saying with the detailed charting is it really helps the other partners who might have to see one of Dr. Kim's patients while she's in Uganda or something like that. So we know what questions to ask those patients. So it helps take better care of them overall. Dr. Wendy, what you said was completely true, that you never know what's going to come in the door. And that's what makes our job so hard. For the things that we can somewhat predict, are there any things ideas you have about scheduling? So we often see our complex patients right before lunch and at the end of the day, and all of us will add in at the end of the day. And then we bring our complex charts home at night and we dictate them at home. And that's something that we just do because we love what we do. And if it's just too much for a visit, you say, hey, you know what? And I literally pull my schedule up in my room and I say, can you come back on this day and time and let's address this? And Mm -hmm. it's like in a week. And I think that's really important too. recognize we're not going to be able to get to the bottom of this. And it's that issue where you think the well visits over and then you hear just kidding. It's actually a sick visit. Surprise. Not feeling bad about saying this is another really important issue. You want to make sure we have the time to devote to it. Let's get you in a week or let's have you come back then. But I also think on a positive, you said, what can you do positively? I think we also need to be aware of our burnout and how many we can see every day. The three of us occasionally have taken a a little bit of a step back for just a very short time. And I think that's important to do. Telehealth, though, that would be another positive schedule situation. That definitely has opened up the availability to get kids, even when they're at school. I've had many moms, you may have to, where they will actually just pull their kid out and will do the telehealth in the car. I can remember my pole vaulter, ADHD patient, who would be right there. The other guys are still pole vaulting in the back, and we do our visit together. And it just helps them to be able to not all need that four o'clock slot Mm -hmm. because these kids often don't really want to miss much school. I also find that the visits are a little bit shorter because they're not quite as prone to just have the sibling that needs to get their ear looked at while you're there for the anxiety visit. A little less distraction. One of the things that also helps, and I think this bleeds over into a lot of our personal time, is that we, we, the three of us especially, make a lot of phone calls between visits. And so we are staying in touch with our families fairly frequently. I know they're supposed to come every three months for medication checks and things like that, but we're often like calling, being in touch by our portal and other manners to make sure that things are going well so that we can make in the moment adjustments to things so that those visits that are follow-up appointments are actually more streamlined and a little more efficient. They're more stable because you've been able to troubleshoot. I've run into a lot of issues with stimulant shortages and you guys can't see it, but all of us just sighed and hunched our shoulders over and looked defeated. But with the issue with stimulant shortages, it's so helpful to be able to communicate with patients after the appointment and find out if they were able to get the medication or not. And if they're having troubles to be able to direct them so that when they come back from the follow-up, at least we've moved the ball down the line. And it does make the follow-up appointment more efficient. You mentioned telehealth, which makes me think one of the reasons why we shifted to that was because of the pandemic. What have you seen in your practice and how has it changed since the pandemic started? I I think we're all shaking our head. The amount of mental health that we have seen, especially anxiety since the pandemic, has at least doubled. And we just make room for them. And unfortunately, the number that we see seems to be complete inversely related to the number of available counselors, which has been quite the challenge. 
One of the things that's been really helpful to us as we've negotiated all of these increased demands is our connection with the collaborative care clinic model that we have in Jacksonville. And I think having a very good relationship with the child psychiatry subspecialist has been essential to help us with our complex patients, our patients who need extra, our patients that we hit a brick wall with who need something more. And that's been very helpful for us. For those of you outside North Florida, what Dr. Chanley is referring to when she says collaborative care is a type of child psychiatry access program to support pediatric primary care providers. We provide workshops for local practices in child mental health care and then are available for outpatient consultation when needed. So through all of these challenges, through the national child mental health crisis, your whole practice has been resilient and you all have found ways to adapt, to innovate and continue to tackle new mental health issues. So what keeps you going? I laugh at myself all the time because I thought during residency that primary care would be so slow and so boring and full of ear infections and sore throats. And oh my goodness, I could never have been more wrong. I've never been bored and never a day has been slow. It's just always. <laughs> very busy. I think the best and most rewarding thing for me is just the connection that we make with our families. I really enjoyed that as a physician, but also as a person. I really like to be connected to folks. Watching them grow and change and evolve and accomplish things has been really amazing. And I love being that trusted person that they might feel comfortable sharing the deepest, you know, darkest secrets of their lives with. And sometimes we're the only person who's carrying that with them. And it's a real honor to be able to do that with our patients. I totally agree with that and feel so much the same way. And, and I would also add that I just love how well these medicines work. I do. It's incredible. We see kids that are failing school who are smart, start to finish their assignments and turn things in with ADHD medicines. And we see families where everybody is, is fighting because of ADHD, where they start to get along and enjoy each other again. We see kids that are literally cutting themselves and see no hope that start to, to feel hope again and actually be able to respond to the therapy they couldn't respond to before because they were so down. And then we see our bound up, anxious eight-year-old and even 21-year-old on the college campus who is so afraid to even talk to another person there all of a sudden find life and friendship and joy. And it's so incredibly rewarding to be actually able to, to do something that'll help the relationships, the family, the person in such a significant way. So to me, it's the, the most effective, the best thing we do. Not that it always works 100% of the time, but there's so much efficacy in the treatment of these things that it really just is um, about the favorite thing to do. I'd have to echo that as well. Being here for 28 years and watching my kids, and I always call my patients my kids, and watch my kids grow up. And to know that they were like failing kindergarten and their families were falling apart. And now they not only some of them have graduated college, but some of them are back with me with their kids and like they're successful moms and dads. And I feel like I help to navigate the, the parents and the kids through their lives and to know that I have made an impact and that they are successful people in society and I feel like every day when I do this and when I get tired and when I feel like, oh, but then I just see him come back and I'm so excited. And I agree with Kim. I think these are the people that you connect with and it's the best part of the job. Your patients and families are so lucky to have you guys. And it's very inspirational to hear like the reality of, yes, this is hard. And also it's very rewarding. So that resonates a lot with me. If you could think about 
practical advice that you could give our pediatric colleagues? What can you share with them about things you've learned? The biggest thing I would say is if you're interested in this, do some CME, learn your medicines, and you don't have to learn them all, but learn some and be comfortable and try them and go with it and see what happens. And if you need more CME, get some more CME. I would just reiterate getting the screeners for patients that are coming to complain of these things, but also with patients that are coming in for the regular checkup, just like we do the PHQ-9, as you have taught us, Elise, to do with every visit, 12-year-old and up. So in other words, screening asymptomatic as well as symptomatic. I think they really not only identify issues that are out there, but also get you down to the nitty gritty of where those problems are. And then I would offer just a couple other thoughts, one of which is to Really know your community resources, know who to ask questions of, and then also to invest in some sort of time-saving software that will really help you chart better and more efficiently so you can get home to your own family. (laughs) And I promise you we are not sponsored by Dragon, but Dragon, if you would like to sponsor us, we are all up for that. (laughs) All right. So wrapping up, here are your top eight pro tips for managing mental health in primary care. One, use screening tools. Two, Take advantage of telehealth. Three, when charting, include measurable behavioral outcomes and consider investing in time-saving dictation software. Four, have your office check in with families in between appointments via phone or patient portal. Five, see complex patients before lunch, at the end of the day, or as a separate appointment. Six, know your community mental health resources. Seven, monitor your burnout. And finally, eight, continue to build your skills through medical education courses like this podcast. Dr. Kim Del Porto, Dr. Wendy Sapolsky, Dr. Chanley Dudley, thank you so much for everything that you do for all the patients and the families in your practice and for all the work that you do that we know is personally really taxing, but that is so rewarding. The families in our community are so lucky to have you. And I'm really excited that now our pediatric colleagues beyond our community can learn from your experiences and learn what's worked and what's been helpful and also hopefully to feel validated. I know they're going through a lot of the same challenges and issues, too. For our friends and colleagues, for more information, please feel free to check us out on our website, site4peds.com, or on Instagram or Facebook at Site for Peds. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.